the scene you just saw of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was preceded by his gathering with his disciples in the upper room in a house in Jerusalem to observe the Jewish Passover and and he instituted the Lord's Supper and he prayed with his disciples and he he talked to them about all that was going to happen. And then they left that room and went to this garden located about three-quarters of a mile outside the city of Jerusalem. And the prayer Jesus prayed in that garden about midnight was during the, the darkest moment of his earthly life. It was a a time of intense anguish for the Son of Man because, yes, he's the Son of God, fully God, but he's also the Son of Man. He's fully man. And the Scripture tells us the story of what happened in that garden. I want us to look at it in, in Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 36. It says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Sit here while I go over there and pray. They could see him. They could hear him. And in verse 37, he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and and John. And the Bible says he began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, my soul, now notice this, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here, stay here, and keep watch with me. Stay awake and pay attention. Help me. Watch with me me and he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed he knelt and he bent over and his face was on the ground and he prayed my father and each time his prayer is recorded there's a sense of intimacy as he 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 didn't say just father but he said my father my father and Luke's gospel in the in the greek is the the word abba Daddy, my daddy, my dad, my father. There's an intimacy. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. All that's about to happen, if it's possible, if there's another way, let it pass from me. Yet none as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. He'd asked them to watch with him, to pray with them, but they're sleeping. And he said to Peter, so. And in the Greek, it has a sense of sadness, a sense of disappointment. So, you cannot watch with me for just one hour? During this intense time when I told you that I'm distressed and grieving to the point of death, and I've asked you to watch with me, you could not do it for just one hour? So disappointed. And then in verse 41, he instructed them, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, my father, there it is again, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. 
And he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? After I woke you up and talked to you two times, are you still doing the same thing, sleeping and resting instead of watching with me? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. And yesterday when I was reading this passage again, I wrote in the margin of my Bible here when when it says betrayed into the hands of sinners. I, I just wrote betrayed into the hands of sinners for sinners. Betrayed into the hands of sinners, the Bible says. And I added for sinners. Because that's what I was. That's what you were. That's what all of us were before Christ. We were sinners. Betrayed into the hands of sinners for sinners. Get up, he said. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Today we're, we're starting a new sermon series for the rest of this month leading up to Easter. And we're, we're going to look at the 24 hours in Jesus' life that led up to the cross. And this is, one. This, this, this is you, you could literally say the darkest moment in his earthly life so intense, so, so difficult, so much anguish. As he knelt in that garden praying, Jesus was facing death, the same kind of literal physical death we face. And it wasn't just death, it was a painful death. As he prayed at midnight in that lonely garden, he knew that his death would be a horrible death. He knew the, the whip would tear the flesh from his back. He he knew the, the thorns would be pushed into his scalp. He, he knew the spear would be thrust into his side. He knew nails would be driven through his wrist and feet. He knew all of that. When he knelt to pray, he knew that people would spit on him, laugh at him, ridicule him, forsake him. When he knelt in the garden to pray, he knew that as he hung on the cross, the sky would turn black and the sin of humanity would be put on him. And as the Bible says, he who knew no sin would become sin for us. He knew that. He knew that on that cross, my sin would become his sin. He knew on the cross, your sin would become his sin. He knew when he prayed that when he hung on that cross, all the sin of every human being that will ever live would be dumped on him as he became sin for us. And he knew in that moment, for the first time in his eternal existence, he would know separation from the Father. He knew all of that. But he also knew it was the Father's will for him to experience all of it. And so when Jesus knelt in the garden praying that night, knowing all of this stuff, Son of God, fully God, yes, but also Son of Man, fully man, and in ways we don't understand, Jesus knelt there praying, knowing all of this stuff, and he was faced with a choice. The Son of Man, Faced with the choice to obey the will of his Father or not. Just like you and I are faced with choices all the time, are we going to do what God says or not? Are we going to seek God's will or not? 
Are we going to listen to Him and do what He says or just follow our own emotions, our own attitudes? All of us are faced with decisions about the will of God. You're out at a restaurant and you feel this compulsion from the Holy Spirit to pray, but you're afraid of who might see you. God nudges you to share your testimony with someone, to share the gospel with someone, to invite someone to church, but you're intimidated. As in recent weeks, God speaks to you about your attitude toward money, your attitude toward tithing, your attitude toward giving, and you want to come up with all these arguments. Are you going to move in with that person before you get married or not? Are you going to be honest on your income tax return? Are you going to cheat on that test? What's the priorities of your life? What's the values by which you're going to live? We're faced with decisions about the will of God all the time. And when Jesus knelt in the garden praying, faced with a decision as son of man, am I going to obey the will of my father or not? He knew that so much was at stake. Our salvation was at stake. My salvation, your salvation, my eternity, your eternity, my being in heaven, your being in heaven, all of it hung in the balance when he prayed in the garden that evening. And Jesus was the only one who could fulfill the Father's will. He was the only one who could be a a sinless sacrifice. He was the only one who could make atonement for our sin. He was the only one righteous enough to hang on the cross for us. No angel could do it. No human could do it. No other part of creation could do it. Only he could do it. It all hung in the balance on his decision, and he knew that. And every time you and I are faced with obeying the will of God or not, there is more at stake than meets the eye. It's like the person who throws the stone into the pond and the ripples ensue. When you obey the will of God, there are ripples. When you disobey God, there are ripples. You don't know what the ripples will be until it happens, but there will always be ripples for good or bad, whether or not you obey or disobey the will of God. There's always outcomes. And so what did Jesus do? He decided to obey the Father's will, to suffer and to die. But it was not an easy decision for the Son of Man. In this garden prayer, we see his humanity. We see his struggle. We see his emotions. Look again at verses 37 and 38 when he took Peter and James and John with him and began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. One of the other Gospels tell us that when Jesus was praying, he, his sweat fell to the ground like drops of blood. There was an intensity. There was a darkness. There was, a, there was an anguish that was very, very real in this moment. And as the Son of Man, he would, would have preferred a different experience. Over and over he prayed, Father, if there's another way, let this cup pass. If there's another way for sin to be atoned for, 
another way for forgiveness and eternal life to be available. If there's another way, let this pass. He would have preferred a different experience. Let me pose a question. What if the Son of Man had given in to his emotions that night? What if his emotions had overridden everything? The way we sometimes allow our emotions and our fears and and our misplaced priorities and and our struggles and, and, and our questions to get in the way of us obeying the will of our Father. What if he, as the Son of Man, had allowed the emotions to win? What if he had taken the easy path instead of the right path, the way we often take the easy path instead of the one we know God has for us? What if he had been guided by his emotions the way we so often are? He obeyed the will of God. What did Jesus do? He prayed. Three times in the garden he prayed. And his prayers are so honest, so heartfelt. He didn't pretend. He took his emotions and he brought them to the Father. He faced them. He dealt with them in prayer, and in so doing, overcame them so that they would not dominate and rule in his decision-making. He prayed. He he turned to the Father. And and as I pointed out a moment ago, the intimacy of it as, as again and again he said, My Father, my Daddy, my Father, when he was in this dark place, this anguished place, this intense place, he did not run from the Father. He ran to the Father bringing with him everything that was a part of who he was. We, so often when we face hard times, we face tough choices, we face things we don't enjoy and like, rather than running to the Father to discover his will and strength that we might do his will, run away from him. How many times do we refuse to open Scripture and read it and hear from God because we sort of know what he's going to say and we don't want to hear it because we don't want to do it? He ran to the Father. That's what he's doing in prayer. He's fellowshipping with. He's communing with. He's resting in the presence of his heavenly Father in the midst of all his struggle and anguish. The most important thing you and I can do as disciples is to stay connected with our Father. Don't run from him. Run to him. And Luke tells us that because Jesus prayed, the Father sent an angel to strengthen him. John's gospel in chapter 17 tells us that Jesus prayed for the disciples and and, and he prayed for those who would believe after them, us. See, when when you run to the Father and you pray... 
He has this way of lifting up your eyes, lifting up your vision, so you see things that are bigger, that are more kingdom-focused, that are more eternal-focused, and not just what is immediately in front of you. Because when you retreat from God, and all you have is you, you don't see beyond you very clearly. But in the presence of God, you can't help but see something bigger and more important and more extravagant. Lift up your eyes to the hills from whence your strength comes. Lift up your eyes that you might see the glory of the only God and the only King and it will change how you deal with the dark and intense moments of your life. He ran to the Father. And he was reminded of why he had come to earth in the first place. What did Jesus do? He asked his disciples to support him, to encourage him, to stand with him. Watch, stay awake, pray, watch with me. He was not too afraid to say to these guys, I'm distressed. My heart is hurting to the point of death. I need you. Watch with me. And too many times in our Christian lives when things don't go the way we like or somebody hurts our feelings or Whatever, we, we not only run from God, we run from God's church, we run from fellowship, we run from Sunday school classes, we run from this, we run from that. Not realizing the whole time we're running away, the one we're hurting most is ourselves. Jesus was disappointed when he asked the disciples to watch with him and support him because when he came to them, he found them asleep. And there will be times when people will disappoint you, when people will hurt you, when people will let you down. You don't run from God's family when that happens. And follow the example of our Lord. What did Jesus do? He practiced what he preached. And one of the things that you're going to see in these Sundays as we look at these scenes from the 24 hours leading up to the cross is that Jesus really did practice what he preached the three years before. That all the things he taught those who would follow him to do in this hard moment, this dark time. He did it. He did it. Jesus did a lot of teaching on submitting to the will of God, submitting to the lordship of God, submitting to God's purpose in life and to the kingdom of God. And in this garden prayer, he demonstrated as the son of man his own willingness to do those things. Look at what Jesus said as we turn to several verses in the Gospel of Matthew. Open to chapter 6 of Matthew. And look with me at verse 10 in the, the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus is teaching them how to pray, he said, One of your prayers should be to the Father, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said, When you pray, pray this way, God on earth in me, in my life. 
I want your will to be done on earth in me, in my life, as well as, as much as, as faithfully as, as obediently as it is done in heaven. Jesus said, pray that way. And in the Garden of Gethsemane at midnight, knowing all that he would have to sacrifice, all that he would have to endure, all that would happen, did he pray that way? He took all of his anguish to the Father and said, Father, I would prefer another way. But if this is your will, it is my will. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in this dark moment, in this place, just as it's done perfectly in heaven. He practiced what he preached. In Matthew chapter 6, look at verse 33. Jesus said to those who would follow him, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Above everything, above all the comforts of life, seek the kingdom of God. Seek the lordship of Christ. Seek his kingdom in every aspect of your life. And when Jesus knelt in the garden of Gethsemane that midnight, did he do that? Did he practice what he preached? Because at the end of the prayer, it wasn't about his comfort. It was about the kingdom. It was about our need. It was about our salvation. It was about those things that were bigger and higher than everything else. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He practiced what he preached. Look in Matthew at chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to to destroy both soul and body in hell. When Jesus knelt in the garden that night to pray, he was facing an enemy that literally would kill his earthly body. But he had more reverence for God's purpose then he had fear of those who would abuse his body. He practiced what he preached. Look in Matthew chapter 10 at verses 37 and 38. Jesus preached, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. In the garden when he prayed, was there anything he loved so much that it got in the way of his saying yes to the cross? What gets in the way of our saying yes to the cross Jesus asked us to carry? The sacrifices he asked us to make. The priorities he asked us to live by. Look in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 verses 24 and 25. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In the garden, did Jesus do that? Did he take up his cross? Did he deny himself? Did he lose his life in order not only to find his life but to save us? See, all the things that Jesus preached, he practiced. We have that saying, practice what you preach, practice what you preach, practice what you preach. He did. So can we. So can you. You can live for Christ. You can change. You can grow. You can be a person of faith. You can make sacrifice. You can serve. You can live righteously and morally and holy. The Holy Spirit of God lives within you as a child of God. And you can do what Jesus said you are supposed to do as one of his disciples. Jesus did it, so can we. There's a couple of key takeaways or lessons I want to point out in closing. One is that choice. Listen, submission is always a choice. Obedience is always a choice. Doing the will of God is always a choice. The FDA this past November formally approved new regulations that are now being implemented that will require all chain restaurants to put in their menus how many calories are in every item on that menu. That's been the law in New York, in the state of New York, since 2008. Now, here's the thing. Most Americans, according to survey after survey, overwhelmingly support this. Most Americans say it's a good thing. It'll help us do better, make better decisions. Here's the problem. There's been a lot of research in states and municipalities where this has already been the law for some years. And do you know what the research finds? Listing the number of calories on the items on the menu don't make any difference in what people eat. They're going to eat what they want to eat. What the research says is the only people it helps are those who are already healthy conscious who've already made the decision to take care of themselves they look at it and it informs them and they make good decisions but those who have not already made that decision it doesn't change anything in their eating habits the will of God is the same way how many of us in this room have been going to church for years or decades how many of us in this room know more of the Bible than we already practice how many of us already know what God, generally speaking, expects of us? It's not that we don't know how many calories are on the items in the menu. It's that we haven't chosen to obey it. Because submission to the will of God is, is always a choice. Submission to His Lordship is always a choice. I, 
Brothers and sisters, there are more people who heard from God over the last several weeks than obeyed God last Sunday when we placed commitment cards in this chest. But here's the second thing. Choosing to submit to the will of God, to the Lordship of Christ in these specific moments, these specific intense instances is always easier when you've already settled the issue that he's Lord. That his kingdom comes first. That his purpose is your purpose. When you you settle that, it doesn't mean that you'll always obey God or be perfect, but it means that you will more often than you want, that you will more often than you would if you've not settled. Because if you go from day to day and circumstance to circumstance deciding whether or not Jesus is Lord, you're going to really, really struggle. But if you ever settle the issue, He is my God, He is my King, He is my Savior, He is my Lord, His kingdom, His kingdom, His kingdom, His will, His will, His will, if you settle that for your reason for existence, then making the decision in the day after day moments is so much easier. And I know some people get mad. I don't worry about that anymore. I'm too old and I've seen too much. I don't want anybody to get mad. But I'm going to tell you something, brothers. One of the reasons I have freedom to preach about money is because I have learned and I've studied God's Word enough to know that that is the thing that competes for the Lordship of Jesus Christ in the lives of religious people and church people more than any other issue. There's a reason Jesus said you cannot serve God and money at the same time. If you settle the Lordship of Jesus over money, it's a lot easier to settle His Lordship over other things because that's the thing most of us are most sensitive about. the reason Jesus talked about it so much. Just read the Gospels. He knows what competes with his, his place on the throne of our lives. Submission is a choice, but if we settle that issue... See, and, and Jesus, even though he was facing this intense, intense moment in the garden... He already knew why he was here, what his purpose was. He'd already settled that, and it made, even though the garden was intense, it made it easier. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus knew why he was here. In 1967, a young Ken Elzinga became an economics professor at the University of Virginia. 1967. He was a new believer, and an older professor, an older colleague, said to him, you need to be really careful about not being too out front with your faith in Jesus because it will hinder your career. He'd already agreed to speak to a, a, a Christian campus ministry group and um, 
one day he was he saw a flyer, a poster they had created with his picture announcing his upcoming speech, and they had placed it in a very prominent place on campus at, at UVA. And he got worried. What will the other professors think of me? Will they think of less of me? Will this hurt my chance of getting tenure? And so one evening, he secretly took the poster down. And he spent a night in anguish. A dark night of the soul searching. The next morning, he put the poster back up. He decided that his life was not about career ambition, but about faithful discipleship and that being private about his faith was not an option. That was 1967. Today, all these years later, today, he's still a professor at the University of Virginia. His introduction to economics is the largest class on campus. Multiple times he's been voted the most popular professor, won the Professor of the Year Award at UVA. And in 1992, the university gave him the Thomas Jefferson Award, which is the highest honor they give any faculty member. He still speaks to Christian groups on campus, in churches, and other organizations around the country, an outspoken follower of Christ. And here's what he said. He discovered that having only one master, having only one master in his life is liberating. It liberates you from the fear of what others will think. It liberates you from the other things people use to hold you in bondage. He said it's freeing, it's liberating, and it is. Jesus said the one who loses his life for my sake finds it. Do you get what he's saying? Freedom, real freedom is found in submission to the Lordship of Christ. And until you have submitted to him, you don't get it. You don't understand it. Freedom is not doing this to God. Freedom is not running away from him. That's bondage to fear, to others, to sin, to flesh. Freedom is found in submission to Him and nowhere else. And Jesus knew that freedom and wants us to know it. Would you stand with me? I'm going to say a prayer. And when we first begin singing, at the end of this prayer, I want you to come, those who feel led to, and just kneel here at the altar on the sides. I want you to come. We're going, before we do anything else, we're just going to spend some time resubmitting, if you will, or for some submitting for the first time to the kingship of Jesus in our lives. Christians, if it's been a while since you got on your face and said, Jesus, you're it, you're king, you're Lord, your kingdom above all, 
I'm inviting you to get on your knees before the Lord and say, Lord, I surrender. I surrender. I surrender. Pastors are here at the front. Come and you can come and join this church. You can come and request baptism. You can, you can come to one of these pastors, counselors, and say, I want to give my life to Jesus and become a Christian, become a follower of Christ. I want to be saved. So let's sing together. And The invitation is open. The altar is open. Just come and get on your knees and surrender to the Lordship of Christ or join this church or pray about whatever He's saying to your heart. Let's sing together. You come and let's do business with our Lord right now. Just come and pray.